0: Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. Welcome to the uh, Rafik Hariri Center of the Atlantic Council. Uh, my name is Fred Hoff. I'm the, uh, I'm the director of the center. Uh, very, very happy uh, that you're able to uh, take the time uh, to be with us this afternoon uh, to participate in what I hope will be a rather, uh, rather interesting discussion. And uh, for those of you on uh, Twitter, uh, please follow us. Uh, it's at Mideast with hashtag AC Saudi. That's at Mideast with hashtag AC Saudi. I'm going to be moderating uh, a discussion this afternoon uh, between two very impressive Saudis uh, Prince Faisal bin Farhan Saud and Muhammad al-Yahya. Prince Faisal, sitting to my immediate left, works in the defense and security sector of the uh, Saudi Kingdom, where he chairs Shamal Investments. He's a prominent businessman who gives a lot of thought to the role of the Saudi Kingdom in the region and beyond. Appearing on a public panel of this nature is not his customary way of uh, spending an afternoon. Uh, this will be his uh, inaugural experience, but we're uh, we're grateful, Prince Faisal, for your presence, and we hope that you'll uh, you'll find the uh, the experience to be tolerable. Well, thank you, Fred. Mohammed um, uh, Al Yahya is, I'm happy to say, a non-resident fellow of the Rafi Hariri Center. He's also affiliated with the Gulf Research Center and Chatham House. Welcome, Mohammed. Our program uh, for the next hour-plus, we can go as as long as 90 minutes, depending largely on uh, on your interest. Uh, Our program will be quite informal. I'll engage our two Saudi interlocutors in a discussion, and then I'll turn it over to you uh, for questions, and I'll try to do that in relatively short order. Uh, This is what I hope will be the first of many Saudi-centered programs here at the, at the Middle East Center. And I would emphasize that uh, neither, neither of our guests uh, speaks for the Saudi government in anything we discuss today. Obviously, the American-Saudi bilateral relationship is an important one, and it's been important for all of 70 years. It's been under considerable stress, over the past several years, culminating, perhaps, in the passage of the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act. And now, with the onset of a new American administration, uh, perhaps it moves into terra incognita. Uh, Prince Faisal, let me me begin, if I may, with you, and specifically with a a relatively recent quote uh, by President Barack Obama in the Atlantic. President said the following, and I quote, the competition between the Saudis and the Iranians, which has helped to feed proxy wars and chaos in Syria and Iraq and Yemen, requires us to say to our friends, as well as to the Iranians, that they need to find an effective way to share the neighborhood and institute some sort of cold peace. An approach that said to our friends, you're right, Iran is a source of all problems and we'll support you in dealing with Iran, would essentially mean, as these sectarian conflicts continue to rage and our Gulf partners, our traditional friends, do not have the ability to put out the flames on their own or decisively win on their own, would mean that we have to start coming in and using our military power to settle scores. And that would be in the interest neither of the United States nor of the Middle East, unquote. So what's wrong with sharing the neighborhood? And why should the United States be intervening militarily to settle sectarian scores?
1: Well, first of all, thank you, Fred, uh, and thank you to the Atlantic Council for hosting us, uh, for hosting me. I appreciate the opportunity to speak. I mean, that's a big, 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 yeah, yeah thank you that's well, thank i mean it's thanks. a kind of worms you th- you know there yeah. i mean first of all why sh- what's you know sharing the neighborhood why is it saudi arabia or irans prerogative to share any part of the neighborhood other than their own countries so uh, you know why you know and i don't understand that concept i don't see and i've not seen anything in saudi arabia's policy uh, historically that has um, trended towards domination of the neighborhood or trying to be uh, uh, hegemonic in any sense of i mean whether it's the, its relationships with Egypt or Syria or you know all the countries in the neighborhood i challenge you know you to name one country where saudi arabia has sought to have a dominant influence or even to have let's say proxies it's always built its relationships with the governments of those states and the region whether that's with the Egyptian state whether that's with the Georgia, even with Syria where it has many differences it never sought to undermine um, uh, you know the Assad regime until you know recently which is a more complex issue uh, you know Saudi intervention for instance in Syria uh, only happened well after the uh, revolution started it's not you know it's not that Saudi Arabia sought to undermine the regime because it wanted an advantage in Syria. So, you, you know, it's well and good to say we want, you know, we don't, the US doesn't want to get involved in, in these conflicts. That's fair enough. But then to make an equivalency between, uh, you know, the progressive uh, uh, Iranian um, advances in the region. So when we saw, you know, they immediately took advantage of the US invasion of Iraq. And really, you know, instituted a strong Iranian presence, you know, through through real proxies. We know we see in Lebanon, for instance, a good example is, you know, make a comparison between Saudi Arabia and Iran's policies in Lebanon. Saudi Arabia, if you want to call Rafiq al-Hariri uh, a proxy of Saudi Arabia, you know, fine, he is, uh, he was a Saudi citizen, he was very much funded by Saudi Arabia through his business interests. But look at, you know, his movement it was very much inclusive. It was, you know, his scholarship program, for instance, well, you know, reached out to all sectors of society. He sought to build the Lebanese state. He sought to build the Lebanese army. He's, you know, he sought to cooperate with all elements of the Lebanese society, whereas Hezbollah insisted on, mm-hmm. you know, building its armed militia, on building its capability outside of the state, using the uh, pretext, I call it, of resistance to uh, build a base of influence that, in the end, I don't see has served Lebanon well at all and been mainly used to serve Iran. So, you know, I, I don't accept this um, moral equivalency that is being uh, shielded in that quote and that Iran and Saudi Arabia's roles are similar. Now, this is not to say that Saudi Arabia is entirely free of blame for things that happen in the region. I mean, you know, if we go into details, that's fine. And, you know, that's part of the relationship with the US where the US needs to say, well, you know, here are things that we need you to adjust. That's fine, but to say, look, you know, you know, because we don't want to get into a fight, we'd rather you roll over and let Iran take over country after country. I think that's not, a, you know, that's not really going to work.
0: You know, uh, on occasion, uh, uh, President Obama has indicated that uh, that he subscribes to the, this sort of ancient ancient conflicts uh, thesis. Uh, to what to what extent to what extent do you personally and other Saudis, you know, in and out of government, uh, process this relationship with Iran in in sectarian terms because this is this is another part of the uh, no, of a, the thesis. You know, it's
1: very complex. I mean, it's undoubtedly the long-standing uh, enmity uh, between Shia and Sunnis plays into you know the complex nature of that uh, relationship it goes beyond that it's you know the relationship between persians and arabs as well because i mean that that you know even before islam there was uh, you know a relationship there that was not very positive let's say that uh, so i mean it, but is that really the driver so you know wh- you know before 1979 before iran really focused on exporting the islamic revolution you know saudi arabia had a relatively good relationship with the shah uh, the region was not beset by uh, um, um, the issues of sectarianism you know they were there under the surface no doubt and you know as the tensions escalate as you know in, in the end identity politics in our region will come to the surface and it's you know it's very difficult for instance and one of the things many people neglect is the importance of domestic opinion on saudi foreign policy so when saudi when saudi citizens who are predominantly Sunnis, see Sunnis being treated as they are in, uh, by the hashed in, uh, in, in some parts of Iraq, treated as they are in you know bombed you know constantly or and attacked by uh, Bashar al-Assad and Syria and uh, Iranian proxies and you know when they see uh, Fatemiyoun from Afghanistan coming into you know to defend Bashar al-Assad all these things. That you know that feeds into the loop, and that then energizes. And you know it's difficult. Then even if the Saudi government didn't want to identify with the Sunnis of the region, it, you know it's it would be hard to justify that to the populace. You know so it, it it's there. It's, we can't ignore it. Uh, you know the thing is we need to find a way to de-escalate. What is that? I you know put forward that the Saudi government probably, and this is my analysis, as you said, I don't speak for them, but this is what I understand of them. sees its engagement with Iran as purely defensive. You know, it would like Iran to focus on Iran, on building the Iranian economies, you know, making the Iranian people successful and happy, and just, you know, not get involved in other states, and specifically, you know, and, and, Specifically, not get involved in Saudi Arabia, whether it's you know involved with you know the Shia of Saudi Arabia or any other form of activity that undermines the security of the Saudi state or its neighboring countries. Mm-hmm. You know, so is there a You know, is there a way to do that? I don't
0: know. Okay, uh, Mohammed. Not uh, not long ago, you uh, you had in the uh, the New York Times uh, a very interesting uh, op-ed uh, that discussed the uh, the phenomenon of Wahhabism and all of this and uh, and and the role Saudi Arabia has played in the in the context
2: yep.
0: of sectarian tensions in the Middle East. I wonder if you can uh, pick up on uh, Prince Faisal's thesis here and and give us give us a sense of your own role of of what 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 exactly is sectarianism mm-hmm. in this context? What role is it playing? Sure. I'll just touch
3: on the quote you mentioned in the beginning as well. Yeah. You know. Uh, it seems to me that what 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 they're underlying when you when, when you when you read the quote out is is there a set of assumptions that are being made, uh, and there is um, a propensity to go towards false balance when dealing with Iran and Saudi Arabia. You know, people like to see symmetry when they're dealing with two uh, ostensible um, uh, rivals and and power centers in the Middle East. If Iran has 47 Shia militias, the Saudis must have something that is equal and opposite. If uh, Iran engages in uh, uh, assassinations, if the IRGC is engaged in various activities in Iraq and Lebanon, then the Saudis must be in the same regions doing something that's equal and opposite. And that's not the case. You know, there are many hardliners in Saudi Arabia that berate the government and criticize the government for not engaging in these activities. But the fact remains that uh, Saudi Arabia has not been engaging in in these activities. On the contrary, much of uh, Saudi Arabia's regional policy uh, has been carried out in close cooperation with the United States. And uh, the establishment in this country uh, very much knows it. Uh, So, this new discourse, the discourse wherein uh, Saudi Arabia is a country that is on par with Iran, uh, that must share the region with Iran, really doesn't fit uh, once you look at, 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 uh, especially Saudi Arabia's history with the United States. If you look at, for example, Afghanistan, that was a pure joint venture between the United States um, uh, and Saudi Arabia, the push towards arming. Uh, the jihadis at that time, and mm-hmm. it 's uh, something that the, uh, Sa- uh, that Saudi Arabia has realized has negative consequences and has created an, uh, an aversion to, to funding groups like this. If you remember in the beginning of the Syrian war, there were many Saudis that were very uh, adamant on going to Syria to fight with groups um, uh, in that country, and the government straight away said, "You know we support this revolution actually Saudi government supported the revolution uh, eight months in uh, much um, uh, and this is something that many people don 't know, but from the beginning, uh, there was a very strict policy against any Saudis going and fighting in these countries. So what's problematic, I think, in the discourse today is that this uh, struggle towards a false balance has created a lot of misconceptions about what Saudi Arabia's policies are, what their priorities are, and what their modus operandi has been for the past,
0: uh, past 30 years, 30, 40 years. Okay. The, uh, you, you mentioned Syria. This is, a, this is a war that's been going on now for the better part of uh, six years. Um, a significant part of the of the commonly accepted narrative of this war is that the uh, is that the Saudi Kingdom either through official assistance or unofficial or, or some combination of the two uh, has has supported groups with a with a strong sectarian ag- agenda armed rebel groups. Okay. president-elect Trump is now saying what the United States really needs to do is support the Assad government and the Russians in their battle against ISIS. So could you comment first on, on the narrative, support for highly sectarian groups? Mm-hmm. And what what would this what would the how how do you think the kingdom would react if this if this policy change were were really put into effect. And then, and then Faisal, I'd like you simply to comment on uh, on Mohammed's comment.
3: Yeah. I mean, who knows what President-elect Trump's going to do? I think anybody who tells you that uh, they know what the president's going to do has no clue what they're talking about. Um, he could change his mind. I mean, I, I, I've heard from very credible sources, uh, compelling arguments that he's going to have a falling out with Putin. I mean, they're, they're two very strong characters, and in many cases, that's not very compatible. But to answer your question, I mean... Uh, I I read in the papers uh, that uh, President-elect Trump refused to uh, have several uh, uh, intelligence briefings. Had he had those intelligence briefings, they would have told him that um, uh, Assad and and Russia have done little in the way of fighting ISIS. I mean, uh, they've been um, uh, uh, targeting uh, the the moderate opposition in Syria, not so much even Jabhat al-Nusra and that's extremely problematic but on another note when it comes to these groups and i hope people understand exactly what i'm trying to get at uh, i'm more interested in the critical mass of insurgents and critical mass of uh, not insurgents but fighters in these groups and not what the people at the top uh, choose um, uh, to to uh, affiliate themselves with in terms of ideology or other things i mean there are many reports of people who are who are fairly secular uh, uh, that are part of the free syrian army joining other more uh, uh, extreme groups uh, for pure operational advantage. At the end of the day, this is still a revolution. Uh, and this is still uh, a dictator that has slaughtered 500,000 people uh, and caused this radicalization to happen. It's very well documented how he let uh, uh, convicted jihadis out of jail in order to create uh, uh, the terrorist uh, um, opposition that he has, has um, uh, warned of in the past. I mean, and just I'll pick up on that. Uh, I'll... To your two points,
1: and then if we have time, I'll go back to the question about uh, his art of sure. article. Uh, so, uh, Saudi Arabia, as far as I'm aware, uh, has supported only what are considered by most the moderate opposition in Syria, so you know, the FSA and some other groups, in the beginning at least. As the war progressed, and as the Assad regime and its allies became more brutal. And more openly sectarian, so we you know because it was all about protecting quote unquote the shrines, even though many areas where you know Hezbollah and the Fatimun fort had no shrines whatsoever, and these things there was you know an unfortunate um, r- counter reaction among the um, Syrian rebels of you know the i mean a, a war this brutal, inevitably hardened souls, and that contributed I think to this uh, um, prote- you know this uh, what happened, what Muhammad described, of lots of fighters going, you know, th- rather than looking at the ideology of the group they're fighting with, they're just going to the group that's most effective in fighting the enemy. And if that group happens to have some, you know, sectarian narrative going on, well, fine, I'm, you know, it's, it's, it's no skin off my back. I'm not, you know, it's, right now I'm not worried about that. I just wanna go with the guy that's gonna help me kill the guy that killed my mother you know, that's it, you know. And, you know, and, you know, does Saudi Arabia have a responsibility there? Yes, I mean, what, one of the problems, obviously, with that is that, you, you know, we are, uh, we were in the beginning and continue to do most of the activities in Syria in cooperation with the U.S., and the U.S.'s policy on Syria has been haphazard, it's been you know, hit and miss, and you know, yes, we're gonna support, and we're gonna put more pressure, but then no, and maybe we're gonna do this uh, $500 million arming, uh, rebels arming program, but then you know, that only delivers 600 people, and things like that, you know, and Saudi Arabia doesn't really have the capacity, you know, whether it's in intelligence services, whether it's in, to do something like this effectively on its own. Uh, but you know, once we were committed to it, we couldn't just say, well, oh, mm-hmm. Turns out the Americans are not really on board with this. Let's just go home. You know, we, you know, and we muddled along, and I'm sure we made mistakes. Again, I'm not involved, obviously, with that, but you know, it, it, I find it entirely possible that we did we intentionally, did the Saudi government intentionally go around and picking you know, sectarian groups and saying, oh, I like what you're saying. I'm gonna give you money. no, I don't think that happened. But you know, is a mess. We all see what kind of a mess it is. And that leads me to your second question about the Trump administration. So I mean, we see now, Syria, Aleppo, maybe today, maybe tomorrow is going to fall. Uh, if uh, Turkey or Saudi Arabia or the US really wanted to escalate, that should have been done three years ago, four years ago. Today, I, d- you know, I don't see how that works. Now again, this is my personal analysis. I don't, you know, I don't know what the government, Saudi government thinks. But you know, what's the way forward? How do we stop the killing? How do people not die? you know, maybe President Trump has an opportunity through this perceived, at least, affinity for Putin to go make a deal. Sit down with Putin, say, okay, look, you know, he'll get the intelligence briefing, discover that Putin isn't really going after ISIS, so at least that'll give him some incentive to go to Putin and say, look, you know, cut the BS. I know you're not really fighting ISIS, but let's agree that that's really the goal, and you have some interests. How do we get to a place where we get rid of ISIS, we protect your interests, can we keep at least our allies to some extent content so that they help us do this fight? You know, is there a potential for them working out something that Saudi Arabia can accept that can you know alleviate the impasse? Possibly. Uh, you know, and Same question would go for Iran, is there because Iran has, you know, both Saudi Arabia and Iran have put themselves in a very difficult position. Saudi Arabia said Assad must go. Iran has basically said Assad will never go. So, you know, where's the room for compromise here? You know, it's basically so one side or the other has to win. Uh, uh, You know, uh, and without putting enough pressure militarily on the ground, you know, that's not likely to happen. So the only hope is then to find a compromise. Maybe, you know, as I said, you know, uh, Trump can do that. And possibly, you know, one of the avenues that can help if the Trump administration It pays a little bit more attention to the concerns of Saudi Arabia and the other regional allies, and uh, uh, that will give them the comfort level to say, "Okay, you know, we can live with Assad for a few years, but you know, let's at least manage some way where he doesn't get control of all of Syria." And you know, you know, because there are lots of areas that, if Assad, you know, was able to take over, he will exercise some real retribution against these people you know these civilians and you know if, you know if you can find a way at least to protect those areas that have been for a long time under rebel control um, you know if it were me i would suggest to support it but again i have no idea what the saudi government might or might not
3: uh, accept yeah. i'm not a not Syria expert but uh, i mean uh, assad being part of the solution means that this conflict will be sustained uh, this is the way i see it right now for for um, uh, the conflict to be brought uh, to an end, he has to uh, uh, be part. Uh, uh, but is that realistic? Is the question. No, but uh, will there be an end to the conflict with uh, him in power? I mean, uh, as we've seen in the five years, I mean, he killed five uh, hundred thousand people, eleven million are di- displaced. It would be very difficult to find a Syrian who hasn't been affected by Bashar al-Assad and his brutality. Is that sustainable? Is that sustainable for another year, another two years, another three years? If it is sustainable, what kind of Syria would that be? These are all uh, questions to be asked. But to comment on on, on Saudi policy on Syria, I think definitely Saudi Arabia and Turkey could have taken it upon themselves to have some sort of limited intervention before Putin entered. But the vacuum that was left that allowed Putin to enter the situation and enter Syria uh, leaves really no room uh, uh, for maneuvering without the United States leading it. Um, And, you know, What's interesting to me is that this threat of, but there will be World War III, allows Putin to get away with anything that he wants to get away with. You know, he can do anything. Uh, and uh, his supporters and people that are, 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 are sympathetic to his policies will say, no, no, let him do it. Because there will be World War III. The reality is, I mean this is a country with 12 aircraft carriers. It's the greatest military power in the world, then he shouldn't be calling the shots and allowing hundreds of thousands of Syrians to die. I think this is what the history books are going to be saying in 10,, 2015, 30 years.
0: You know, you know there is some commentary out there uh, that suggests that if, if there is this drastic change in American policy, at least, at least a change in the declared policy uh-huh. towards Syria, uh, that, uh, that Saudi Arabia and others... Being being fixated, as they are on, on defeating Iran, uh, will go off on their own, and and basically supply uh, Syrian rebels with weapons that uh, heretofore have not been have not been supplied. Do you do you find that thesis at all credible? Is there perhaps is there perhaps a larger issue? involving the bilateral relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia. How does, how does all of this get balanced?
3: Saudi Arabia is not a NATO member. Turkey could do that maybe. But if Saudi Arabia uh, were to transfer its uh, inventory of Taos, the Syrian rebels, and they were to shoot down two Russian um, uh, jets, we're not a NATO member. Um, and judging by the past eight years, I don't think um, um, the Saudis really uh, are counting on, on US support as much as they used to in, uh, in the past traditionally. Um, I don't know how realistic that is. Again, uh, um, at this rate, I, I think without uh, a plan under U.S. leadership, uh, nothing mean, needs yeah, to be uh, Yeah, yeah I mean, look.
1: This, yeah. uh, again, I'm no Syria expert, but I, you know, as, as just as happened, I said, he isn't. What, you know, to my mind, escalation, as I said, should have happened four years ago, five years ago. That would have been at that stage, it could have been effective. Obviously, Saudi Arabia's ability to maneuver was hampered by jordan by turkey by the u.s to some extent so you know we we you know i think we would have only been able to do as much as turkey was willing to do at any point in time or as much as you know to uh, the u.s would allow regionally to happen you know if if you know even if we uh, there was a time i i understand that we were ready to supply man pads even if the u.s was not willing to do it but the border states were not willing to Take that risk, you know. Turkey and the Jordan were not willing to, uh, even though they, you know, they wanted to, but they felt that it was too much of a risk to uh, ignore. Uh, Turkey had gotten, I think, into trouble already once, you know, because a certain number of man pads went through for, you know, that were supplied by Qatar, and I think after that they decided that unless the U.S. is okay with it, they're not going to do it. So, you know, but again, if they if there was a will, it should have been exercised six years ago. Now, whether you know, any supply of man pads or toes or whatever uh, can be sufficient to put enough pressure on uh, Russia slash, uh, uh, I don't know, again, I don't follow it enough, but every day we s- sit and talk about it, it's less effective. So, you know, if, you know, and now, maybe next week, probably even less. You know, I see some very cr- cr- capable Syria experts in the room, maybe they you know when we open to comments maybe they can you know enlighten us and tell us how what you know how much we don't know about the subject uh, but it's i see it very difficult and Mohammed mentioned uh, uh, you know about the thing about us leadership and that kind of i'll take that into a bit of a broader thing rather than you know mm-hmm. just on syria i mean you know uh, because the this panel you know the the, the, the uh, this panel we're talking is a, a, few, a, a new saudi uh, foreign policy question mark uh, so we are asking the question So my perception, and this is my perception, again, I don't speak for that, is that the Saudi government continues to want the U.S. to take a leading role. We are very much accustomed over the years, uh, we've been accustomed to the U.S. taking the lead in defining what is the best avenue to maintain regional security. You know, I think we still want to see you know, a, a U.S. role for that, we, you know, for the simple reason that we, we you know, we, know the, we think, we, know, we thought we know the U.S., we've been comfortable with U.S. leadership, you know, we are U.S. allies, we have been for decades, we have worked well together, we have strong relationships, so we'd like to see that. Uh, you know, is that likely to happen with the new administration? I think, as Mohammed said, most people will tell you it's unclear. You know, some of the names we're hearing, you know, Petraeus, uh, uh, Mattis, et cetera, might indicate, you know, some positive engagement, but some others might point in a different direction, and in the end, it'll be up to the president-elect, you know, to decide. So, absent that, I think, or regardless of what happens, I think Saudi Arabia will continue to build its capacity to act on its own when necessary. You know, this is something we have have to learn at quite short notice. I mean, one of the issues I have with the Obama approach, you know, that kind of comes in the, that came in that quote you mentioned is, you know, it's fine if America decides I'm going to leave the region and I'm going to mm, not abandon my allies, that's too much, but just, you know, expect the allies, regional allies, to do much more. But, you know, okay, that's a policy decision. Agree, disagree, that's something else. Then how do you implement that? And, you know, in my opinion was, you know, somebody should have come and said, look, this is the policy and we're gonna now help you transition to ad- accepting that policy, and we're gonna really seriously help you build the capacities that you're going to need to live with that policy, You know, whether that's specific military capacities that we need, or even political and intelligence capacities, because one of the things we rely on the US excessively for is intelligence capability. You know, it's just an understanding, especially on you know, military intelligence levels of what's going on, what are the military capabilities, especially right beyond the border. So you know, we, we, you know, what's going on deep in Iran, what's going on in Syria, what's going, et cetera, et cetera. So if, you know, if you're gonna make that decision, fine, but let's work together to make it productive in the sense that when you're out, I can at least protect my own interests, and when there are mutual interests to protect, I will be a real credible partner for that. Again, whether the U.S. decides to help with that or not, I think Obama later did realize this error and did try to address that in a much more effective way. You know, we saw Camp David, the, the Camp David meeting, things like that, but even that didn't really work. That, you, know, the, you know, there was, uh, mm-hmm. you know, at least my sense from the people I talked to in Saudi was that, you know, the U.S. was less than committed to that process. Uh, but if that you know but I th- well, you know the short thing uh, I wanted to say was that I think Saudi Arabia, regardless, will focus on building those capabilities, but you know again, you know there are lots of areas where we lack capability we're learning we' you know we're working to address them, and I think the the government is very keen to keep that process going even if the u s is completely fully back engaged in, in, in the region with the Trump administration. And certainly that would be my advice if they asked mm-hmm. for it, they haven't. Uh, uh, but if they did, I would say that, look, you know, whatever Trump does, he's only gonna be around for four, maybe eight years. So you, you know, we, you know, we can't you know, rely on what the next administration then, you know, has got, whether they go one direction or the other. So we've gotta really build the capability to either work with America if they're interested or work on our own if they're not.
3: Well, that's uh, yeah, yeah Mohammed. Uh, it's also often overlooked that that um, uh, when the Iranians see themselves opposing Saudi Arabia, in many ways, uh, the, it's an effort to oppose the United States. They they view Saudi Arabia as an ally of the United States. So. Uh, It's a struggle more between the United States and Iran, where Saudi Arabia is in the middle, instead of the way the Obama administration is trying to uh, make it seem. Like it's a struggle between uh, two equal um, uh, hegemonic powers in the region, uh, uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran. I mean, we can't forget the fact that Iran has supported and harbored Al Qaeda in the past uh, in order to uh, allow them to attack U.S. troops um, uh, in Iraq. So there is a very clear anti-U.S. Uh, 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 policy that's implemented, that, that, that is employed yeah. by the Iranians, and in many cases, uh, uh, its opposition or its qualms within Saudi Arabia are purely a manifestation of this overarching uh, struggle against the United States.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, let's keep the uh, let's keep the focus uh, for a it. couple of more minutes on the uh, on the relationship, but let's switch catastrophes. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's move from, from Syria to Yemen.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Uh, upwards of uh, 7,000 civilians killed, uh, some 35,000 injured. Uh, real issues of, uh, of civilian protection. Uh, should the United States uh, have done a better job of uh, dissuading the Saudi kingdom from, from intervening? I mean, in in Yemen. should they have done a
1: better job of dissuading us? I don't know. I mean, it's uh, look, Yemen, the intervention in Yemen came in, its, in a very specific context. It came in the context of what had happened in Iraq, you know, so the success of Iran in basically taking control of Iraq, <laughs> the you know. What we perceived as America's acquiescence to that, and you know, whether it's the allowing the re-election of Maliki you know, and other things that you know we could, we don't need to discuss, uh, the situation in Syria, the escalation of the situation in Syria, uh, you know, the broad-based uh, Iranian intervention regionally, the perception that the U.S. is less interested in pushing back against that, uh, made I think the Saudi government very much unable to accept the potential of an Iranian you know, I I will accept not a proxy, but still an Iranian allied movement, and let's not forget that, you know, Hezbollah, when it first started, wasn't a full proxy of Iran. It's, you know, that was something that took years. So, you know, if we allowed the Houthi movement to take over Yemen, you know, with all its military capabilities, and, you know, its proximity to our border, and that then developed into a relationship with Iran that was a full alliance, we would be surrounded. We would have Iraq. Where you know Iran had an extremely strong presence on the north, and Yemen on the south, mm-hmm. we would have uh, Lebanon and Syria also under strong you know Iranian influence. I think it, for us it was very difficult uh, to accept that. Now, obviously, if you you know we can you know I think we could have a whole panel on just talking about the uh, the conflict in Yemen because it's a very complex issue, and you know th- it goes back to what I mentioned earlier the issue of capacity. So it's the first conflict where we, since the 1960s, where Saudi Arabia basically took the lead on its own in a military operation. It's a very complex military operation. Yemen is a very complex military environment because we had, you know, Saudi, this is an area I know a little bit about because of my involvement in the military industry. So the Saudi military has been, for decades, built on a principle of fighting a conventional defensive war. So you know, fighting a conventional war, for, you know, against an army with ta- you know tank brigades and coming over the border. I you know, let's not discuss capacity, but that's what we're trained for. So when we end, you know, the Yemen conflict is very different. Obviously, it's a war we are fighting in Yemen. It's not you know, we're not just protecting ourselves from uh, Yemen coming in or, or you know Houthi forces, although that's part of it. And Yemen also is a very complex environment where intelligence capabilities are critical. And because on-the-ground intelligence in Yemen is notoriously unreliable, we you, know, we, you know, one of the areas we could have used a lot of American help, for instance, is a better ability to analyze all the information, all the data, to make sure that, you know, when somebody, you know, when a source on the ground says, look, this house, you know, this is an arms depot. You know, you know, it comes, because the process as it comes, it's, you know, a Yemeni source will tell the Yemeni government, the Yemeni government will tell the Saudi government, you know, this building has some ammo in it. Go blow it up, please. And the, you know, this is, and you go blow it up. And then sometimes, you know, the it, Tends up, unfortunately, not uh, you know, or you know, or somebody gave you, um, um, you know, a, a small error in the GPS coordinates or whatever, and you, know, and you hit the wrong house and civilians die. And this has, obvious, even said you know, one of the things I would say. I think you know, the way we handled these issues in the beginning of the conflict was deficient. The, the way the coalition, Saudi Arabia, so we, uh, you know, we were very. Now I'm talking to Saudi generals. They were very conscious of the need to protect civilians' lives, right? but again, we didn't, it's the first time we've handled this, um, so we were not really capable of efficiently addressing, you know, when reports of civilians are casual, how to analyze, how to, how to find out what went wrong and not to do it again, It took us some time to learn that, and again, so, so you know, could they have prevented us? I, I honestly, I doubt the, I mean, it, Obviously, if the U.S. really, really wanted to do something, they could have, you know, for instance, uh, not supported the UN resolution. They could have vetoed the UN resolution that you know that gave support for the intervention in the UN. That's something they could have done. But I think that would have resulted in a complete <coughs> breakdown in the relationship between Saudi Arabia and the U.S. I, my, you know, what I uh, my supposition is the U.S. should have done more. Obviously, you know, I'm a Saudi, you know, that's normal. But I think they would, you know, if if civilian casualties was the main concern. Additional US support, not on, okay, well, then leave supply of precision weapons, et cetera, aside, but on the intelligence, on the intelligence front, yeah. on the intelli- especially on the electronic intelligence analysis. I mean, it's, it's a basically a counterinsurgency type environment. And something the US in Iraq and Afghanistan has developed great, great capabilities in, which the Saudi military and you know, the coalition militaries hasn't. And that could have assisted greatly in reducing the numbers. Of false targetings and things like that. At least that's my my opinion.
3: Very good. Ahmed. Yeah, I think the Saudis see that they had no choice but to intervene in Yemen. And their, their argument is, is, is very clear. You know, I think even if it were Greenland supporting the Houthis, uh, they would have intervened nonetheless. Um, and it's important to look at uh, the domestic dynamics in, in, in Yemen to, in order to understand this. You know, the Houthis, in total, are around 60 or 70 thousand people. These aren't the insurgents. This is just. The population of Houthis, and they, they live in the, mo- in the northernmost city on the border of Saudi Arabia called uh, Saada. Now, they took San'a in September of 2014, and many pe- in, uh, of yeah, of 2014 it was yeah. mm-hmm. uh, And um, uh, many people argue that that's the time that Saudi Arabia should have intervened, but Saudi Arabia waited until March 2015 uh, to intervene. Uh, what's truly mind-boggling is that the Houthis put their sights on Aden. I mean, there is no popular support for the Houthis. There's actually a great aversion to the Houthis from the political process. And and if you look at the history of Yemen, um, it's very uncharacteristic of the Houthis or any militia from the north to go that far south. Um, And Yemen has the second uh, highest, um, uh, uh, it ranks number two in the world in terms of small arms per capita. You know, The propensity for it to turn into another Somalia is it's a powder keg. Had there been no intervention, who knows what would have happened? Mm-hmm. You have to consider as well Saudi Arabian aid to Yemen in the past. Uh, at some times, it's been intermittent, but without Saudi Arabian aid, Yemen would have been, uh, wouldn't would have been able to stay afloat for the past 30 years. It went to social services. It went to infrastructure. It went to uh, uh, hospitals. It was integral to Yemen's survival. And there was no way that Saudi Arabia would have continued to give that aid uh, uh, under a Houthi allied um, uh, coup government uh, and Iran doesn't provide aid of that uh, of that sort. I mean, uh, I mean so it, it was going in a very clear direction, yeah. I mean, uh, regardless the, of the fact that it, uh, it's Iran that's backing yeah. the Houthis or that there is mm-hmm. this perceived regional struggle well, no, between I mean, the Iran two is, But Iran was a
1: primary driver, and of course. You know, one of the you know that leads back to a point I made earlier that lots of people you know, just as to reasons for intervention, a lot of people discount, as I say, domestic, you know, drivers of Saudi foreign policy. You know, domestically, a lot, you know, Saudis were becoming very concerned about the continuing success of Iran's efforts in the region. Now, you know, maybe part of that is exaggerated in Yemen or whether, you know, that's an argument I think we, you know, we, we don't have time for, but that was the perception. And you know, part of how where a government gets its legitimacy, any government, whether it's a monarchy or a democracy, is it's in its ability to protect its people, to maintain the security of its people. And if the people, you know, get a perception that the government is unable to provide the security of the state, that reduces that you know that affects the legitimacy. So the Saudi government is obliged to take those domestic considerations into uh, into uh, account. And if you tried to, if you took the mood of the Saudi populace during the Houthi advance on Sana'a and then the advance southwards, you would have found a strong, palatable anxiety and a feeling that you know why is the Saudi government? And as Muhammad said, most people would have told you that we should have intervened. Not even Sanaa, but Umran when they took Umran, which was you know the really the watershed moment <coughs> when they were clearly going to you know force themselves on the government rather than just get a better negotiating position as they had claimed. And you know they, remember Saudi Arabia supported several deals with the Houthis. Mm. Uh, you, you know uh, when they took Umran and when they took Sanaa, when they, you know uh, that you know they, anyway, so. So that domestic anxiety, and this brings us a little bit back to the issue of Iran. One of the difficulties for Saudi foreign policy with Iran and with maybe coming to an accommodation with Iran is Iran's, fee, apparent in my opinion, I might be wrong, but I sense they have this strong need for rhetoric, you know, for rhetorical superiority. You know, at least you know they're constantly you know, talking about humiliating everybody in the region and imposing their will and you know, we're gonna blow up the entire Fifth Fleet, and we're gonna close this, and we're gonna do that, and you know, we're gonna blow Israel, you know, we're gonna wipe Israel off the map. Obviously, they've lost the map to Israel, so, you know, because they've been saying that for 50 years, and you know, or whatever, since 79, and it hasn't happened, it's not gonna happen, you know, they've blown Aleppo apart, though, uh, you know, and, and, but they have, you know, and their generals saying, we've got this capital and that capital under our control. And I understand a lot of that is just rhetoric. It's empty rhetoric. You know, a lot of the Iranian threat is bluster. I completely, I will acknowledge that, and that you know, Americans have. I'm sure the American government has said that to the Saudi government. There. Now the thing is, you are America. So when you know you sitting here four, 000, five thousand miles away, you've got, as Mohammed said, you know, a dozen aircraft carriers. So if you, you know, if some Iranian general says I'm going to blow up the fifth fleet, you, what do you, you know, what does the uh, uh, Commander of the Navy, do he laughs? You know, he he has a chuckle. He says, Go ahead and try. Saudi Arabia, Saudi citizens are not that far away. And there is a closer balance of power. So when some Iranian general says, Well, we're going to go to Mecca or we're going to, you know, these kinds of things, we are, you know, the government has to take that seriously because if it doesn't, you know, it generates a certain perception among its populace that it is incapable or unwilling to face up to threat. So that's, one, you know, that's another one of those areas where if, you, you know, if, if someone asked me, well, how can we get to a Saudi-Iranian Saudi, um, uh, rapprochement of some sort, you know, we'd have to find a way to address that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know Saudi rhetoric recently has been quite escalated against Iran. But if you look historically, normally Saudi Arabia has tried to be very mm, low-key in its criticism of Iran and things like that. Even when Iran has committed acts of terror, you know, the Khobar bombing, we we tried to play that down because we didn't really want America to go to war. With, uh, you know, the FBI director, Louis Free, was very upset about that. You know, if you read his book, you will see that. Uh, You know, they've assassinated uh, our diplomats in Thailand. They've assassinated diplomats elsewhere. They've, you know, and, you know, most of the time we have kind of tried to minimize the tensions that result of that. The Iranians, all they have, seem to want to ratchet up things all the time. And I think that part of that is for domestic consumption, I understand completely. But, you know, the, you know people have to understand that that has an effect on our domestic policy as well, domestic politics.
0: Okay, we've, uh, we've covered a pretty broad range of issues. I'd like you to comment on just one more before we, before we turn things over to the audience. And that's, and that's Egypt. Mm. Uh, President of Egypt, President Sisi, uh, is trying, trying hard to warm up relations with Moscow. Uh, he's come out recently and announced explicitly his support. President Assad in Syria. Uh, Saudi Arabia has uh, cut off fuel subsidies. There are, there are ongoing discussions about this, I take it, between the two parties. Uh, what, is, what is your sense of where this is headed?
1: I mean, look, I have no idea what Saudi policy on the issue is. I don't even, you know, on the oil shipments, you know, they haven't officially said that it's a relationship issue. You know, they keep mentioning it's maybe technical, things like that, so I don't, you know, I can't comment on that, but I, certainly their mm, uh, position on Syria is diametrically opposed to Saudi Arabia's position, and that can't be, uh, can't make for happy uh, discussions when the officials talk about that kind of issue. Uh, I think we are as much concerned, probably I would suspect, uh, about what's going on domestically in Egypt. And you know, obviously we're not, you know, it's not so much the politics, but just the economy. You know, we Saudi Arabia, in the end, wants stability, Uh, stability in the region, stability in regional states. It supported the Egyptian government with a lot of money, so has the UAE. And I think that the hope is that that money is used to. Energize the economy, to, you know, to get, generate a better living standard for Egyptian people. Problem is that's not happening, and that's probably the biggest concern. You know, obviously there's also the inability to get a handle on Sinai, things like that. That's you know, from us, you know, uh, from, you know, for me at least, as a you know, just personally, mm-hmm. I think that's a bit of a concern. I mean, it's, uh, you know, if you, if they're not able to get a handle on Sinai. Uh, which is, uh, you know, they're in, within their own country, it's, uh, it's quite worrying. It, you know, it, it raises issues about the capacity of the Egyptian mm-hmm. state, to, you know, to, you know, whether it's the army or the security services to really get their act together. And then, if they can't manage the economy, you know, can you imagine if
0: uh, Egyptian economy collapses uh, com- completely? That'd be a disaster for all of us. And again, coming full circle to the relationship, uh, the president-elect has has expressed a certain certain degree of admiration for President uh, President Sisi. So perhaps this will be another uh, potential sore point uh, in the bilateral relationship. Well, I, I don't, don't know think. because I think I
1: think we still are committed to the Egyptian uh, gov- to Egypt and its success. And I think the Saudi government, even if even with the differences, will still attempt. To maintain a positive, strong relationship with Egypt mm-hmm. under Sisi, or, you know, and they will tr- so continue to offer. I think whether the, you know support continues at the levels it has before. Obviously, you know, one driver is you know we don't have quite as much money as we had, you know, two years ago because you know we you know the oil isn't $100 anymore. Mm-hmm. So that's a consideration as well, uh, as well as you know the concerns about whether they're being effective in running the country. Right? You know.
0: Well and that raises that sort of yeah. raises a question of conditionality. Yeah. If if support if support is reestablished yeah. or does continue yeah. at a certain significant level, uh, would you see would you see some sort of conditionality coming into play rather than simply the, yeah. the writing of large checks? I don't know, but I would hope so. Uh,
1: but, I, but just to your point about Trump, I don't think his, affi- you know, affinity for Egypt will in any way, put te- you know, be a source of tension between Saudi Arabia and Egypt. Uh, no, I don't think that's an
0: issue. Good. Many yeah, many I mean, closing uh, thoughts before we move yeah, on Yeah, I audience? mean, uh,
3: in terms of Egypt, uh, there are many other interests that bring the two countries together. Syria is a, quite a significant point of disagreement, and I think... Uh, it's going to create even more tension between the two countries, but we have to for, uh, remember that. I mean, Saudi Arabia and the rest of the Gulf states, uh, despite their criticism and, and, and despite their, their concerns with the way that Egypt's being run sometimes, still have a vested interest in a stable Egypt uh, um, uh, in order to uh, ensure stability in the region. So while it is a, a very large point of disagreement, the Syria Egypt, Syria policy, we have to keep in mind that you know there are other factors that that. Uh, uh, that that,
0: that form the relationship between the two states. Fair enough. Okay. Questions. Uh, Please, uh, uh, there'll be a microphone coming around. Uh, Please, uh, if you would, stand up when you pose your question. Identify yourself, and uh, by all means, make it a question.
4: Hi, uh, David Weinberg, Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Uh, I wanted to ask you about JASTA and about U.S. policies toward Muslim immigrants or citizens. Um, to, given that it's unlikely JASTA will be fully repealed, um, to, what, what, to what extent do you think the Saudi state is setting an objective on this issue? Is there a particular type of scaling back the law that the Saudi state would be okay with? Um, and then uh, secondly, um, in, in light of the relatively congratulatory, cordial phone call and message from, from King Salman to President-elect Trump, um, at least based on you know, how it was described in the Saudi and American press, um, is the Riyadh going to let Trump's rhetoric on how to treat Muslim people slide? Uh, or if he implements some of the policies that he pledged on the campaign trail, is this going to become a bilateral issue in U.S.-Saudi or U.S.-Muslim world relations? Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank I you. suspect you'll both have something to say on well, that.
1: Uh, thank, you. thank you, David. Good to, uh, um, I, just, uh, uh, I mean, I'll speak for my, myself. I can't speak for the government, but I think my biggest concern is um, the issue of freezing of assets. So you know, as the law is written right now, it doesn't seem that is a big threat. And you know, if it, it's adjusted to make that clear, I think that's, you know, from my perspective, it's okay. I, I am confident that in legal proceeding, there's no evidence that can be found that Saudi Arabia actively had the intent to support uh, 9-11 or any um, activity related to it. And therefore, you know, by all means, let it go through the courts, although that's gonna be a ridiculously expensive Exercise for everyone. The only concern I have with that is uh, one of the reasons why I got actively involved in this kind of thing in the first place is the issue of perception, understanding of what ear is and how side is. And you know, the problem with just in my mind mainly was the fact that every you know it allowed. Those people that had that opinion, it allowed them to tie Saudi Arabia to terrorism and say Saudi Arabia is the source of terrorism. Now, again, that's another panel we could do, you know, what Saudi Arabia did or didn't do, you know, where there is some, you know, again, that's too long to talk about. But that's my main concern about JASTA. And, you know, that's also my main concern about the legal proceedings. So if we got, you know, because if we go, so six years, seven years of legal cases accusing Saudi Arabia of being involved in 9 11 and Saudi Arabia having to defend itself. You know that you know the media machine can then churn that, keep churning that about Saudi Arabia, nine eleven, nine eleven, Saudi Arabia. And, you know we, you know, and we can't even get to the conversation about what was, you know, you know, what is Saudi Arabia really? What you know is Saudi Arabia's view of the future, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a, you know, to me, it's a dangerous distraction for Saudi Arabia in the media that we could well do without. So that's, I mean, why. I think I'm most afraid of just, so I would most have preferred the just that just doesn't exist. But on a legal case, I'm not worried. Um, second question about uh, Trump and his rhetoric. I think for now, uh, the government will try to convince itself that this is p- potentially just election rhetoric, and it will not be reflected in, act- in action. If the rhetoric does continue into action, then, you know, I don't know. But you know, it certainly can, it won't help because again, the domestic uh, issue will come again. The, this issue of uh, domestic perception, Saudi domestic, you know, there will be pressure on the government not to be too chummy with somebody who's, for instance, carting off Muslims to be deported, and things like that. Um, that I'm just going to switch just very briefly to something about America, if you allow me. Uh, I mean, what concerns me most is I think Trump. Some of the things he said, maybe I mean, in the heat of the moment or whatever. I, th- I mean. You know, we have to wait, how he behaves. So that's not, you know, I'm not too worried about Trump because I hear also good, you know, some people say good things about him in private. And uh, What I am concerned about is the media environment that developed. What I'm concerned about is the whole, you know, the, this very negative mm, environment towards Muslims, towards others, towards Latinos, all of these things. You know, So, I, you know, we see in Europe, Also, quite worrying trend. So, I just, you know, as somebody who loves the U.S. and who, you know, looks to the U.S. as, you know, uh, as a model in many things, I hope that, you know, this isn't uh, a foretelling of the future.
0: Mohamed, you've uh, you've written uh, some things about uh, about the perceptions of uh, about the perceptions of Muslims, about some of the uh, the campaign rhetoric and so forth. Do you have any any particular comment on this? How? How does uh, you know? How does how does your government uh, approach a new Trump administration on this? Particularly if you have a, you know, you have a national security advisor who's uh, who said some rather controversial things about uh, the necessity of uh, fearing Islam and so forth. What's what's the what's the general approach you'd you'd recommend on this? I mean, I I'd have to
3: uh, agree with Faisal. I think. Um, we'd have to wait to see what what the actions are after um, this rhetoric. Because there's a lot of contradiction, um, uh, even in the rhetoric coming out of of, um, uh, Trump's campaign, whether it's um, the NSC advisor or or Trump himself. I mean, the main contradictions that are worrying people in Saudi Arabia is, first of all, how is Trump going to reconcile his affinity for Putin with his distaste for Iran? How are we going to square that in in the region? This is a question that should be answered. Um, Trump came out and said he loves Saudis because they buy apartments from him, but at the same time that Muslims should be carted out. This is another um, uh, contradiction. Um, So it could go both ways, I guess, and and, and this is something that's going to... uh, that, that that we'll see soon. I mean, I, I spoke to somebody that that's closer to the Trump camp recently, and he said that uh, this is only a reflection of of, of uh, the views of the constituency that Trump wants to activate in order to be elected into power, and that it makes sense. You know, he was also arguing that uh, that uh, for the first time we have a president in this country that is informed in large part. Uh, policy-wise and opinion-wise, by the views of his constituency, so it's coming from down and going up, and not coming from up and going down. So uh,
0: a model of democracy. You're yeah, a model the for democracy. democracy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, partial. Yes, sir. Here, here comes the mic.
2: Thank you, Mohammed Al Shweiter from Yemen, a Fulbright Fellow from Yemen. I have two questions. The first, first one is, I mean, there is many uh, studies or analysts mentioned that um, the war in Yemen was like a trap because there is no comparison between the cost of the war for, for Iran and the cost for Saudi Arabia. Regardless that the Yemeni's people, the civilians pays the most, I mean, uh, cost for this war. The second question regarding the Saudi Arabia policy in the region and the GCC in, in general, seems like there is a, com, uh, a a competence between Saudi Arabia and Uh, let's say, uh, emirates in the region regarding the policy in Yemen or in the region in general? Thank you. Okay,
1: thanks. So, uh, first point, I think, look, uh, definitely my opinion is that uh, Iran saw Yemen as primarily mm, an opportunity to distract Saudi Arabia from Syria more than anything else. Uh, Iran would have been very happy had the Houthis succeeded in taking Aden and taking control of the. But was it a top priority for them? Probably not. Uh, would you know? Uh, will they be terribly disappointed if the Houthis don't succeed or can't maintain a strong position in Yemen? Um, I don't know. But yes, I think it, the priority for Iran, if anything, was to distract Saudi Arabia from Syria rather than gaining control of Yemen again. Now. Uh, from our perspective, the Saudis, it was, okay, yes, we are, and I think we went into it understanding that. I don't think we went into that expecting anything else. But had we not done anything, they would have gotten an easy win, on the other hand, is what happened. So, you know, it, it's not pleasant to say because, as you say, the Yemeni people are the ones that are paying the primary price for this competition, but that's the reality. Uh, on the UAE, I think my perception is that while there are occasionally disagreements between Saudi and UAE on details, they remain very, very close, even in Yemen, uh, and uh, are both committed uh, to uh, to this campaign. And I can tell you, just on the military side, that Saudi and America and uh, Saudi and Emirati uh, special forces are present together in Marib, in Naham, in Adan, in, in uh, near to Bab al-Mandeb, and on the Saudi border. So they are. Very much intertwined. The, the cooperation on the military level is at you know the just top level. There's no uh, there's you know there's there's no, you know no space at all. Politically, how to proceed? I, I don't know. Again, I'm not party to the conversations, but I would not be surprised. You know, again, they are partners. They're not. It's not you know. It's not one of them is in charge. So they probably discuss. Should we go this way? Is this better way? You know. Sometimes maybe the U. A. May have a different opinion. And I, I think that's healthy because you know that you know that helps him getting the right, uh, finding the right course. And I don't think there are any significant disagreements. I know there, are, you know, sometimes rumors come up, but I haven't seen at least in what I see in the relationship at the leadership level between the UAE leadership and the Saudi leadership that anything of that significance.
2: Good.
3: Yeah. In terms of um, uh, uh, Yemen and, and Iran, what is intended in Yemen, I don't think. Uh, what we're seeing today in Yemen is what Iran wanted in the beginning. I don't think actually that they uh, wanted the Houthis to even think about marching on Aden. I think the idea that the Iranians had for the Houthis in Yemen is that they would have another Hezbollah, you know, another um, uh, parallel state that can prod the central state, a weak central state that's backed by Saudi Arabia, that they can use whenever they like. Uh, but not a group that's running the country. That's too costly, first of all, to support because you st- have to start paying for roads, you have to start paying for healthcare infrastructure and other things, uh, and. Yemen is already a state that is is, is, uh, quite chaotic in September 2014. Having a powerful organized militia that's well-funded and uh, well-armed by Iran that uh, exists in parallel uh, to the state, just like we see in Lebanon, uh, was the the main idea. Now, the Houthis, I think, didn't listen. The Houthis marched on Sana'a against Iran's wishes, and they marched on Aden. And this, I think, was a surprise to many actors involved. And this is where Ali Abdullah Saleh comes in. You know, this is, uh, th- that's, that's the other part of the equation that we haven't talked about today. Uh, and that's what changed uh, uh, the realities in Yemen and caused the Saudis to, to intervene. Now, uh, had they listened to Iran, I think, and refrained from marching on Sanaa, we would have seen another Hezbollah in Yemen, a powerful paramilitary force that exists in parallel to the state. And the Saudis, I think, would have accepted it. I, you can argue whether they should have or they shouldn't, but they would have accepted it. You would have had another Hezbollah and another Lebanon situation existing just to the south of Saudi Arabia's borders.
0: Ali Abdullah, I understand, wants a, uh, wants a United Nations well, left Cuba. to uh, Castro's uh, uh, funeral.
3: Optics. Yes. Uh, yes. I, I, I Question
0: up front here.
5: Thank you very much. On your last point, I think that you may have just answered the question about accommodation, you know, in, in Yemen, that there might be the roots there for possible accommodation. Mm-hmm. I'm Alexander Kravitz from Insight. I have to say I'm a little bit sceptical, Ambassador, about your introduction of uh, Prince Faisal as this being his inaugural public appearance, given his, you know his his presentation today. Thank you. We talked about Syria, Yemen, Egypt. I'd like to move us to to Iraq, if I may. If you could give us both, you know, a uh, perhaps a birds eye view of post mosul how you see it i mean the sunnis are definitely in a you know in the sort of the, the losing end if you will i mean you know the 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 um i mean or, or rather how, how would you know what does a post mosul look like or should look like for the sunnis and perhaps a specific idea would would the kingdom what would you think of the kingdom uh, helping to underwrite you know let's say, let's call them uh, reconstruction bond, Mosul bonds, if you will, you know, for reconstruction of, uh, of Iraq.
1: Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Look, uh, so, so far on Mosul specifically, uh, I think you know, it's going better than the worst fears ha- might have allowed. So, you know, the Iraqi army continues to take the lead. The Hasht seems to be confined to Tal Afar, not directly involved. From Iraqis I know who have family in Mosul, I hear that so far, uh, you know, the Iraqi army is behaving relatively well towards the civilian population. So if that continues, I mean, it's by no means end, you know, we're not ended, you know, it could very much go another direction if the, you know, the Iraqi security forces hit a wall in their progress, you know, the Islamic State is able to put up a stronger fight or whatever. But if that continues, then we have hope then we have a potential for hope. The question then becomes, is the Iraqi government able to build on that potential, you know to build in, in on that success, if it, if it ends up being that, to uh, uh, put the basis of an inclusive uh, uh, you know, government within say Iraq that addresses you know basic Sunni needs and things like that, and eventually gets us back to a situation where it's not about Sunnis and Shias in Iraq anymore. Uh, you know, some signs are not favorable. We have this recent law that legitimizes the hashed as a permanent institution of the Iraqi uh, security. So, I mean, I don't see the point of that at all. I mean, I, 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 I get why we formed, why they formed the hashed, fine, but, you know, the hope was at the time that what was announced was once ISIS is defeated, the hashed guys will go home, and we will focus on building the Iraqi military. I don't understand why we're not focusing on building the Iraqi military. I don't understand why the international community isn't in there, insisting that Iraq, if it wants, continues to want the aid it is getting, the support it is getting in military, thing, that it focuses on building the Iraqi military. I mean, this is where we, I think the U.S. fell down from the beginning. This is where the re, you know, Saudi Arabia also, and the regional states where we, you know, we didn't engage enough with Iraq in the period after uh, the invasion to make sure that the state institutions are protected and built. So you know, we, we, you guys went in there, disbanded the Iraqi army, and then you know tried to rebuild it under very difficult circumstances. But you know, uh, we, all, we also, allow, you know, it was also permitted for people like the Badr and all these to to to, to flourish. You know, they should have been quashed at at such a sensitive time. Uh, you know, that's one that brings me back to Iran. So there's a good Iraq is also another good uh, test case for Iran. So you know, share whatever. So is Iran willing? to allow, the, you know, through its influence in Iraq, uh, its political allies to focus the energies of the Iraqi state on building the Iraqi army as an institution of the state for all the people and to address uh, uh, the needs of the Sunni areas that have been recently liberated from ISIS, or is it going to focus on strengthening its real proxies? I mean, in, you know, these are people that are often speak Persian, who have some of them fought for Iraq in, for Iran in the Iraq-Iran war, who have um, committed acts of terror on behalf of Iran. Some of these leaders are still wanted by the United States. So is Iran gonna say, okay, I, I have what I need in Iraq. I have a strong position. I have primacy. I don't need to keep Iraq weak for the, you know, for the decades to come. Or is Iran gonna say, no, wh- you know what I want is a weak Iraq dominated by my proxies, so that whenever I need Iraqi cannon fodder to go fight for Bashar al-Assad in Syria, or potentially to go attack Saudi Arabia, or things like that, that's my goal. You know, which path are they gonna take? I mean, I think Saudi Arabia will very much be willing to support um, you know, reconstruction in Sunni areas, all these kinds of, but you know, I'll give you an example. Uh, 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 Saudi, the Iraqi government won't, you know, for a time, I don't know if that's changed, but for a time, wouldn't even allow our embassy to import its armored cars for, it, for the ambassador. So, you know, what does that tell you? So, you know, I'm, I'm not hopeful. But, you know, the, the Mosul part gives me some limited reason to hope that maybe things can go well. But then, you know, we get back to Baghdad. Is the leadership in Baghdad gonna get its act together? And if they do, I think Saudi Arabia will be more than willing, will be more than willing to, you know, to engage. And you know, they've had uh, the foreign minister over to Saudi Arabia. We have, you know, they, they pushed to replace uh, minister, uh, the ambassador. We, you know, we, you know, we withdrew that ambassador and we'll nominate another one. So I think we're trying, but you know, we'll see. Yeah.
3: Um, yes, sir. If, Muhammad, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, if you take a step back, I think any lasting solution to the problem in Iraq will have uh, uh, to include the monumental task of fixing what Nuril Malki broke, and that's what we're, we're still ignoring. You know, uh, the Iraqi army, when he debaathified it and when he removed Sunni uh, commanders, that's when he broke it. That's when uh, a few hundred uh, ISIS um, uh, members overtook Mosul and the Iraqi army ran away. This is why the Iraqi army um, uh, was rendered pretty much useless. This vacuum is is what created the need for for militias, uh, uh, like we see right now. Nur al-Maliki also had sectarian policies that broke the social fabric of the country. Uh, He had um, uh, an inclination towards Iran and allowed them to create. Now there are 47 Shia militias in Iraq. You know, it's not a small issue of this parallel. state. There are 47 distinct Shia militias that are all uh, pretty much controlled by the IRGC in Iraq. So in order to fix that, uh, I mean, it's a monumental task for Haider al-Abadi. Uh, and before there's any meaningful cooperation in terms of rebuilding or development between Saudi Arabia and, and, and Iraq, we have to tackle these, these huge issues that are really threatening um, uh, the very social fabric of the country.
0: Thank you. Uh-huh. Yes, sir.
6: Thank you so much, Ambassador Hoff. Uh, very interesting discussion. My name is Scott walkis I'm a former Fulbright scholar uh, who spent time in Bahrain. So my question is, in fact, about Bahrain. We've heard about Yemen, uh, Syria, Iraq. Uh, what about Bahrain? Specifically, um, what sort of policies might be in play in the future? Uh, of course, we don't know about Trump, but on the Saudi side. Uh, and I'm thinking especially that, that it's a mirror image of... Syria, albeit on a much smaller scale. That is, there's a regime supported by outside intervention, in this case the Saudi intervention in 2011 to uh, support the Al Khalifa family. Um, by contrast, Saudi, uh, Syria is, of course, supported by Iran. Uh, the, the consequences are much smaller scale. We we have a much smaller country uh, there in Bahrain, uh, but it does not seem sustainable to have a regime that represents the minority of the population when at least 60% of, of Bahrain is the, the Shia. So it's not a sustainable long-term solution. So is there any discussion within Saudi Arabia about longer-term, solution beyond just the repression of uh, uprising domestically. Thanks. Thanks.
3: I, I would say it's the farthest thing actually from a mirror image, and, and I would say that's an example of the false balance that we see uh, when, when when dealing with these issues. Um, the total number of people uh, who died in the in the 2011 revolution I don't think exceed 100, and half were police and half were, uh, were protesters. In the beginning, the uprising contained a large Sunni contingent that dwindled. Once um, uh, uh, many of the Sunni protesters feared that there were plans for an Islamic Republic in the country. And today, I mean, I live in Bahrain. My mother and father live in Bahrain. We lived in Saar, which is an area that's, uh, uh, that has Sunnis and Shias. And now I live in Rafah. So today there's really nothing uh, going on in, in, in the country. I'm sure if you follow it, you know, every couple of months there are some tires burning in a remote village uh, and that's put out. Uh, uh and 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 life goes on i mean uh, it's very far from what happened uh, uh in 2011
1: it's uh, yeah. i mean uh, obviously mohammed since he lives there knows more about the subject than i do and you uh, know I, mean, I, I mean the only thing i would uh, add to what Mohammed uh, said. I think Saudi Arabia is committed to Bahrain's security, and uh, it wasn't a Saudi intervention, it was a GCC intervention in uh, 2011, so not just uh, Saudi units, uh, but uh, primary Saudi, obviously, and you know they didn't participate directly in any uh, actions. And, but uh, I think the Saudis have always encouraged the government of Bahrain to uh, address the needs of all of its citizens, not just Sunnis, and not just, I think we, we would I speak for myself. I certainly hope that the Al Khalifas, you know, the fact that they are Sunnis shouldn't prevent them from being able to lead a country of majority Shia. I just don't think why why we should worry about it. it's Just like it's my problem with Assad isn't that he's Alawi; it is you know that he you know is you know, He is Bashar al You know, um, uh, you know. Remember in Iraq, we supported Alawi uh, for for a time. We you know we hoped he'd win the elections. Uh, uh, you know, then the rest is up to the Bahraini government. Saudi Arabia has always had this policy of supporting governments uh, in the interest of stability and encouraging them to try and do the best for their people. You know, I think Bahrain tries very hard, and hopefully they will, you know, they will continue to try and hard and address. You know the issues that cause tension and really resolve those tensions. That's just me speaking. Of as course. matters and as
0: matters now stand, though, right. and Mohammed, perhaps you can yeah. pick up on this. Do the Al uh, Khalifa have a, a a basic legitimacy problem?
3: No, I don't think that's uh, that accurate whatsoever. And, and just to, um, to touch on that, there are many different kinds of Shias in Bahrain. There are Ajam Shias who are originally Iranian. They're very close to the regime. There are Arab Shias who are closer to the type of Shias that we see in Iraq. Um, uh, so it, it, it's, it's very complex, and uh, um, alliances uh, b- b- don't tend to shift much, but but um, there's a lot of nuance there, and also even within Arab Shias, there are Akhbari Shias that are, are closer to Salafis, and their outlook towards politics, you know, they're very apolitical uh, Shias. There are Shirazi Shias. So to to simplify it and say, you know, there's a 60% um, a Shia majority and a 40% Sunni majority, and the major- uh, minority is ruling the majority is, is is not really a very accurate reflection of, of, of yeah, what's again, going on. And there's
1: on there. an opposition yeah. element, as you said, among Sunnis as well. well so it's you know it's exactly. it's more complex.
3: Yeah. yeah.
0: Okay. Okay. Yes, sir.
2: Uh, thank you. I'm Leon Weintraub uh, from the United States Foreign Service, retired. Uh, the panel is about a new Saudi policy in the region. One country in the region that hasn't been mentioned is Israel. We've seen a lot from Prime Minister Netanyahu in the last month about increasing recognition about the positive attributes for more Sunni-Israel relations. There have even been reports in the media about various levels of, uh, of meetings, of contacts. And now we've got a Trump administration coming in, which ostensibly would probably be m- a much stronger supporter of Israel, although that remains to be seen. I'm wondering if you'd possibly make some predictions about where you see this... Re- Relationship or near relationship or almost relationship. Where do you think it might go? Well, I mean, prediction.
1: I, I tend to not want to do prediction, and especially on this one. But I mean, you, uh, you, what, could, you
0: could quote Yogi Berra. Uh, on this. Yogi it's Berra. difficult, especially yeah. about the future.
1: Uh, yeah, but I mean, what I will say is, I mean, you know, we uh, King Abdullah uh, uh, put forward the his peace initiative. I don't even remember how many years. It's quite a few years ago now which was a very progressive um, uh, proposal, in the context of the time, at least. You know, it was rebuffed at the time, but that is still on the table. I think if the leadership in Israel is willing to take that up, uh, then it would open doors to, you know, if, it's the, you know, if the Palestinian people you know, can find, you know, if there's a way to find uh, a, a legitimate settlement for the grievances of the Palestinian people. I think you know, I think there, there's some potential there, but honestly, do we see signs of that? You know, you know, the trends within Israel right now don't really point to that possibility. I mean, if the only hope for some contact beyond you know, the briefest of, you know, hey, what's going on, and that kind of thing between Saudi Arabia and Israel is, well, you know, we both don't worry about Iran, I don't think that's enough. I think that's b- barely enough to just, you know, pass by each other and say, you know, you know, just like that. And, you know, <laughs> but it, it, it's not going to be—it's not going to be a basis for any relationship.
3: Without solving um, the Palestinian issue, I don't think there will ever be any um, meaningful contact between the two countries. If Mr. Netanyahu or the Israeli government were really keen on on, on um, uh, uh, building relationships with Sunni Arab states, then they can tentatively accept the Arab Peace Initiative and say, let's talk further on how we can amend it so that's agreeable to all parties. I mean, it's a very reasonable um, uh, 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 solution if, if you just Google it and read it. I mean, uh, Ariel Sharon outright said that he, he didn't accept it. If if the Israeli government were, were serious about this, they have to understand first that there will be uh, no relations between Saudi Arabia, uh, um, and I can't speak for other Gulf states, but I imagine other Gulf states, without um, uh, 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 solving the Palestinian issue. So any, any uh, uh, communication or, or bridge building has to come within the context of, of at least trying to solve the Palestinian issue.
0: Yep. Uh, we have Bilal up front here, Brittany. Okay.
6: It embedded in many of your comments is this clear frustration about U.S. Mis- misperceptions about the kingdom, and, and and I hear you. You know, it's it's a lot of it is understandable. Um, but but my question is, I mean, why has the kingdom allowed these misperceptions to fester for such a long time? And you guys are doing your job, obviously. But what about the Saudi government? What about the rest of society? I mean, is it incompetence? Is it arrogance? Is it lack of interest? Is it all of the above?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, if you find the answer, let me know. Uh, uh, That's 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 mainly what I can say. First of all, I'm not not doing my job. I'm just, you know, basically, I'm an amateur here, and uh, you know, just trying, you know, trying. But it, you know, you we, you you know, you know that I've only recently gotten involved in this, and the reason I got involved in it is because I saw this misconception. I saw it. building, I saw it based on um, a lot of just misunderstanding, and when I investigated further, I discovered exactly what you're pointing to, I think that a lot of the reason is us, not the think tank community, not the press, not, you know, the general public, it's us, us Saudis, whether it's the Saudi government or the Saudi academia, you know, it's a broad base, you know, we are very opaque, you know, we don't communicate well why the answers i mean again we could have a panel on that because it's it's an issue of uh, capacity it's an issue of understanding it's an issue of governance it's it's a broad based issue i think the government uh, has realized the problem i think the government the leadership is very much focused on addressing the issue but i think we are starting from a very very you know very weak position in this area and uh, and it'll take us time to really get on the ball whether it's the the government or us and, you know even private sector engagement whether you know so i I've, I've been here for a couple of days meeting with think tanks and things like seeing what private we me as a private citizen and others who might be interested could potentially do to facilitate a better understanding of saudi arabia you know whatever that may be the government needs to be more engaged obviously it needs to have a better mechanism to communicate its position but I think it's doing better. I mean, we see, you know, Deputy Crown Prince Hammond being very open to the press, you know, constantly meeting, being open to, you know, to think tanks and having extensive discussions, explaining the government's position. You know, that didn't used to happen. You know, ten years ago, you wouldn't have met the, you know, a mem- someone of his seniority. You know, a think tank group wouldn't have met him for hours and you know, really gotten, you know, other th- more than just top light insight. Uh, um, you know we have several ministers here uh, this week actually touring a lot you know, meeting a lot of people and trying is it enough it 's not enough There needs to be a lot more effort because I mean you know re- you know reaching out to all these all the possible pe- constituents you need to reach out to takes a very broad effort it 's got to take time but yeah all, all of the above maybe
0: all the way in the back. Uh-huh.
1: And he's probably one of the p- parts of what we are hoping to, you know, so, so, you know, seeing people like mohammed you know, participating and becoming members of, you know, think tanks and things like that is what, you know, certainly for someone like me, you know, I see Fahad Nadir here also is another one. So, you know, we have some,
3: but we need a lot more of them. And there was no need in the past for this. You know, well, this is the problem. There was a need. Our former ambassador, Prince Bender, had a direct line to the White House. Exactly. Uh, Saudi Arabia was a black box. You know, nobody really knew what yeah. was going on inside Saudi Arabia. People just thought these people are our friends, well, and that was that.
4: Well, I, I, would, mean, I uh, would
1: argue it wasn't that there wasn't a need. There was a the need. It was just there wasn't an understanding of the We squandered. Look, no, we, I had, mean, we had, uh, sorry The questions
4: uh, didn't exist.
3: Yeah,
1: well, yeah but we, should, I mean, we had, you know, since the Reagan administration, you know, even before, but I mean, you know, in modern, you know, we had a fantastic relationship with the U.S. We could have, you know, you know, why didn't we use those years from then to now to build an infrastructure that allowed us to have a real dialogue? Whenever there was a problem, we, you know, we could have really worked on these things on a broad scale, rather than, you know, if you know, if one relationship broke down, you know, the whole thing was in tatters for, you know, for years. So, you know, I think, you know, I think we made a mistake in that. That's, you know, it's undeniable. Final question,
2: yes sir. All right. uh, Thank you. I'm going to piggyback off the last question just to uh, plug my friend's organization. It's called uh, SAPRAC.org. It's a Saudi American Public Relations Affairs Committee. I encourage all of you to check it out. He's a journalist from Saudi Arabia. And uh, the question I have, I don't know if you've already discussed it, is the uh, ongoing uh, negotiations between Saudi Arabia and Russia about the oil price. And if you have any comments about that. Well, uh, uh, well,
1: I don't follow the oil market as closely as I should, except for looking at the price every day to see, you know, because that kind of, you know, <laughs> because that kind of drives everything in Saudi Arabia. But I don't know enough about it to comment. I mean, I think Saudi Arabia is quite serious. Uh, you know, I have a friend here who knows more about it than I. But uh, 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 about finding a deal and is hopeful. Uh, I th- whether Russia is or isn't, you know, we're just going to have to wait and see. It's going to, I think, we'll know in a couple of days maximum. Well, I don't know. I think yeah I, I, I hope because I'd like the price to go up. I'm a businessman, so that so for me, oil prices going up is a good thing. Going down is not a good thing. but that's just pure self-interest here speaking right now.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, the OPex uh, talks collapse. i'm I'm more pessimistic. I don't think that a deal is going to be reached because Saudi Arabia and rightfully so, has a policy of protecting oil market share. Um, uh, you see, it's uh, the main fear is that if Saudi cuts back, Uh, a million or two million barrels that um, uh, there'll be cheating taking place, and it happens quite frequently when it comes to oil production. And that uh, will be filled in by Venezuela that's strapped for cash, uh, Russia, uh, Iran. uh, And that market share is very difficult for Saudi Arabia to reclaim. You know, it would have to flood the market, and then we'd we'd see two or three million extra barrels to what's being produced right now. So the best um, uh, solution is to maintain market share, unless there is an agreed uh, 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 collective cut that is uh, proportional uh, and and um, uh, 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 instant. Yeah. And that, I think, is is is, is impossible. Um, and this is my 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 opinion. I mean, yeah. I hope I'm wrong, but we'll see. Very
0: very good. On that note, we'll uh, we'll close. Just two two quick announcements. Uh, tomorrow, uh, the 30th of November, will be the long-awaited uh, launch of the Middle East Strategy Task Force report. Uh, this year-and-a-half effort uh, by Secretary, uh, former Secretary Madeleine Albright, former National Security Advisor Steve Hadley, uh, to construct an overall strategy of partnership uh, between the United States and the region that will, that will hopefully uh, guide our government and other governments over the next coming few years. That's tomorrow. Uh, in the new year, relatively early in the new year, in January, mid-January or so, we'll be launching uh, a major project, a two-year project, trying to build a uh, framework for reconstruction uh, in Syria. Uh, so please keep those two things in mind, one one very near term, one a little bit farther out. And uh, let me let me just take a quick poll. What do we what do we think of uh, Prince Faisal's inaugural shall, shall this, I go up, out up, other down, other <laughs> up or down? Please join me in thanking our guests. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you.
3: Thanks very much, for, thanks, right. Fred. Thanks, <laughs> Fred. Thank you.